This is exciting for me. <laughs> it's exciting for me. <laughs> Hi, this is Sam Lishak with Absolute EHS, and I'm here today with Sidel. Hey, Sidel, how are you? I'm feeling good today. I'm feeling good. That's really good. Um, so let's let's uh, dive in. But before we uh, start with your story, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. I'm uh, 63. I am a retired New York City school teacher. And when I retired, my husband at 55, the day I could, my husband said, why are we staying here in Brooklyn? He was miserable trying to find parking every night the alternate side of the street he'd come in like after two hours of looking for parking in tears saying we can't do this so we started looking upstate because we were just renting so it didn't matter anyway and we ended up um in Woodstock because we both love music so much live music and my husband does play the drums and uh we were taken to court in Brooklyn by our downstairs neighbor because my husband was playing drums and the ce- her ceiling fell in. So, <laughs> so that's when we really said, you know what, it, it's time. And uh, we ended up here in uh, Woodstock and we, it, it took time to find friends and community, but we're very happy here. That's great. I, I have to ask, though, what kind of drums does he play that would cave in a ceiling? At the time in, in Brooklyn, it was electronic drums to not even make much noise. Like the electronic drums that you put headphones on and you get connected and it still, you know, it still did. It, it wasn't <laughs> like your mom's brownstone, all beautiful and strong. This is a place we've rented for years and the landlady never did anything. So it wasn't surprising. Wow. <laughs> but that, that, that really started us thinking about it. Okay, so you moved up to Woodstock pre-pandemic? Yes, yes. We've been here for nine, ten years. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, oh, it has been a while. Yeah, um, it, so... but it, it took a while to fit into a community that was quite established. That's good. So what before December 2019, what did your day-to-day look like? What was life like? Um, being retired... I had plenty of time and I was very active on things. I was um, president of the Ulster County Women's Network, which was a wonderful group of women in Ulster County from all parts of Ulster County. We would just network once a month. I I was introduced to them through a friend and, and I felt it was such a great way to meet other women and not feel isolated that I ended up being president. And it was just an organization that would get together once a month for dinner and some sort of demonstration and conversation and networking. And it was really a lovely safe space. So I, a lot of my energy was on that. And I was also um, volunteering for the Woodstock book, book Fest every year, which brought wonderful, wonderful authors up to Woodstock. And that was just a great thing. And then every year in October, I would run a venue for the Woodstock Film Festival. And I really loved that where I would introduce the film and the, uh, creators of it and then run the Q&A after it and just it was just a great way to like I had nothing to gain I didn't want to I didn't have a movie to push I didn't have a screen uh, a script to push so it was just a way just to get all these incredible people up here and be there and my venue the Bearsville Theater always ran documentaries so I got to see incredible things that you normally wouldn't see and so those kind of volunteering things kept me going and, and kept me busy and now there's no contact with people and I 
dropped out of um, everything and everything else was canceled. The film festival went virtual this year, you know, so it was just all different. So I don't really do much now with my time, but I've also just recently regained my energy. That's good. And if you don't mind, we'll get to that in just a moment. But can you tell me about how you first heard about the pandemic um, that really shut down everything you were doing? It was very, very odd. My husband and I took a vacation in February, last February, to Costa Rica because it was something that we had talked about forever. And um, a friend of ours is a travel agent. She's like, if you're going to go, just go already. Just get it together and go. And, And she got us two different locations to visit. And I had been to Costa Rica 30 years ago with my first husband and it was a completely different experience. You know, we were sleeping in hostels and we didn't have any money. And this time I went with Alan and we were like taking planes everywhere and, and staying in actual hotels. So it was very different. And then as we're in Costa Rica, you know, we're watching the news, but the news is in Spanish and my Spanish is so, so, so we didn't really get the gist of it a lot. And then we're at the airport coming back, I guess it was the second weekend in February And we saw a couple of people with masks and we really, really didn't know much of what was going on. And then we land, you know, in New York and it just, everything just seemed different when we got there. It it was just the beginning of it, you know, and we, you know, then we settled down for a few days at home and they start talking about, you got to buy hand sanitizer and you got to buy masks and, and, it just was crazy because we get the New York city news on satellite up here in Woodstock. So it was just, we didn't really know. And then all of a sudden it was everything when we came back, but at least we had this wonderful, wonderful relaxed vacation. And we were like, Oh, okay. You know, we could handle being home for a little while. You know, we we just had such a good time, whatever, having no idea. And then I went for a mammogram and that's when it all started crashing down. Yeah. um, So you have a very, uh, I feel important story and I'm so happy you're willing to share it. Um, if you want to continue talking about your mammogram and what happened after. Well, I didn't have a mammogram for about two and a half years because I'd slowly moved my doctors up here, but um, I just never really gave it much consideration. Um, breast cancer does not run in my family. Um, I had no indication of anything. And I went for a checkup and they said, take a mammogram. And then I had a mammogram and they're like, I think you should call your husband. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, we need to talk to you. I think you should call your husband. So then I called Alan. He comes 20 minutes later to the doctor and they said, we think you have breast cancer and you need to get biopsies immediately. And it was an unbelievable unbelievable feeling because I had no I had no lumps I had no discharge I had two beautiful healthy breasts and I just was shocked because I've never had any kind of illness at all and I, I remember that day completely because they had to usher me out the side door because I was in absolute absolute hysterics and I, I it just was unfathomable to me so um I went for the, but like, I knew nothing about this. I honestly did. You hear when people have cancer and you give them empathy and sympathy, but until you go through it, you have no idea how much is involved because it's now 
coming up, we're mid-February, it's a year and I'm still not finished with the treatments kind of thing. But um, so I had biopsies and I ended up having four biopsies because I had three different cancerous sites in my right breast and then in my lymph node. So that it was just unbelievable. And I, I didn't know what to do. I called my girlfriend in the city and her um, relation is a top breast cancer surgeon. So I started seeing her in the city. And then when I started going down there for appointments and COVID was, this was last March and COVID was out of control in the city. So we drive down two hours to the city. Alan would sit in the car. I'd go up to the appointment, find out what was going on, come back. And it, it, it became very difficult to keep going to the city under the COVID conditions. Like he couldn't even go into a restaurant to pee because they were closed. There was, you know, couldn't get anything. So he would just, so it would be like a whole day thing just to go to the doctor. So we transitioned to a doctor up here in Poughkeepsie, which was like 45 minutes away. The doctor in the city had said, we can do surgery and you won't need any reconstruction. And she scheduled the surgery and um, the surgery got canceled because of COVID, which was when I decided to see a doctor upstate. So the doctor upstate said, no, you need a complete mastectomy. So oh. again, hysterics, hysterics. And also no, no husband to hold my hand. Just he had to sit in the car with the phone on. And I've got to say that was the most, difficult part of this whole year that every single treatment, diagnosis, surgery, everything I had to do alone because he was not allowed in any office or any anything. And that that part so sucked. It so sucked because they tell you this information. Oh, we need to cut here. We need to cut here. And your mind is going a million miles a minute, but it's really I'm crying. They're talking. I'm hysterical. I don't remember what they're saying. And it has to, you know, they say take notes, but the things they say are so horrible and scary that you can't take notes and you can't focus and you can't think. And you got somebody else on the other end of the phone listening, but it's not the same as being there to ask questions and stuff. It was, that was the hardest part. And then they would say that I was, you know, difficult and full of anxiety, but it was because I was doing it all on my own kind of. So after the COVID surgery got canceled, after the surgery got canceled, um, and then I saw the doctor upstate, the doctor in New York City said, I needed to start chemo immediately because my test came back triple positive, uh, triple estrogen positive and triple something positive. And that chemo, there was a targeted chemotherapy for that type of breast cancer. I didn't know anything about breast cancer. You could have this positive, this negative, you could have positive and negative. There's all different drugs. I had no idea. So then I had to look around for an oncologist up here. And there are very few. There are some in Poughkeepsie, there are some in Albany, and we're midway. And you're talking, you know, needing to go often. And I didn't know if I'd be able to drive. And many times I wasn't. And it was very hard to find an oncologist. Nobody, this is now, mid-March, nobody is taking new patients because COVID is raging. Uh, 
I could not get anybody to call me back. And then when they heard that I had been in New York City, they didn't want to have anything to do with me. It was really difficult. Honestly, I found an oncologist because um, Alan had gone to a local doctor who had since sold his practice. And we had to call that retired doctor. And he had to call his friend, the oncologist, and said, look at her records. I know you could help her. So the same oncologist that rejected me a week before accepted me only because he was friends with this doctor. That's how difficult wow. it was. Yeah. So I go to that appointment. Again, I have to go alone. And he tells me what's involved. And I start, I really start losing it. Then they take me to the infusion center to see what it is. And I had to sign 12 pages. Each page needed a signature and each page was describing drugs and possible side effects. And that I was informed of the side effects. So I'm reading these pages and they're like, you know, heart failure and uh, toenails falling off and mouth sores and uh, anemia and nausea and vomiting and low blood count. It just went on and on and on. And by this time I am hysterical because I didn't know what chemo was. I didn't know all these side effects. And they're, they're making it seem so matter of fact that you just sign, yes, you know, you know the side effects, sign, sign, sign. So I am his, truly, truly hysterical. They brought in the hospital social worker who asked me if I wanted to be voluntarily institutionalized because Whoa. that's how hysterical I was. Yeah, it was really, really bad. So I'm like, no, 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 just, just let me go home. So she was asking me all these questions. And then she, they called me up the next day to see how I was doing. And then we had a real social work interview and, uh, I think, I don't know if it was the next day, a few days after. And um, she said, had you ever, have you thought of suicide? I said, not, uh, never in my life until I got this diagnosis. And then you drag me into this room and tell me all these things that happened to me. And I said, yes, I have been thinking of suicide because I said, I'm not going to do chemo. And she said, well, what steps have you taken for it? And I said, well, I went through every drawer and found every expired Valium and every expired pill that I ever had and thought about taking them and looked online and found that the quantities of the stuff I had wouldn't do anything. So I abandoned that idea. And then I thought about like turning on the car in the garage and she's like, oh my God, you really do need hospitalization. And I'm hysterical crying. And it was really, it was just horrible, horrible, horrible. And it was like this for like a week or so. And I said, I'm not doing chemo and I'm not going through it. And if I die, I die. And I actually went and made sure that I had a will and everything else like that, because I really, I, I just could not see myself going through this process. I had always been, I mean, I felt like the kale salads that I ate every day. What was the point? What was the point of being like mostly vegetarian? What was the point of being healthy if, if it didn't stop me from getting cancer? So, you know, my, my poor husband was at his wits end and he was telling our closest friends, he doesn't, that he needed to reach out to friends to help me because I was, I was as low as anybody could ever be and didn't want to move on. Uh, a friend of ours up here, what a wonderful, wonderful person. Her um, brother-in-law had helped her husband who has um, Parkinson's. 
and she felt that he could help me. He is a um, doctor, Dr. Ron Rudell. He's a medical internist, but he also started something called Havening, which I had never heard of. And um, he called me because I was not reaching out to anybody. I wasn't talking to anybody. I was just completely withdrawn. And he reached out to me and um, he said he could help me. He said he can really help me. He started this technique of Havening um, to address like post-traumatic stress disorder. And the idea, it wasn't like therapy because I had talked to my therapist. I really had. And it wasn't something she specialized in. And she was like, well, you know, everybody's COVID depressed right now. So I needed something more than COVID depressed because I was completely depressed. And um, we started doing sessions over the phone and Havening is, it's not like um, e the tapping, it's, it's rubbing parts of your arms and head and hands. And um, he's like a, a Harvard grad neuroscientist. So he knew, you know, it's not like he was a flake. So he developed this, this touching technique where you can open yourself up and deal with your anxiety. And we ended up having five FaceTime sessions. And the first one, I was like on the floor. I just couldn't get up. And by the second session, I stopped crying. I couldn't believe that I stopped crying. And we talked about things that I thought I had gotten over, but they seemed to have been emotional triggers and he would work me through it like uh, a thing would be while I was havening, rubbing my arms, rubbing my hands. He would say something like, picture the page where they listed the side effects. Just picture every single thing I said. I could remember every single side effect. He said, now, picture the letters like being scrambled and blown away and just keep rubbing your hands, your head in a, in a technique pattern. And then it was... Uh, seeing Mary had a little lamb and I thought the guy was like crazy. And then he would be like, open your eyes. Okay, now close your eyes. What do you see on the page? And I said to him, I can't read the letters on the page. They're all scrambled. And that was my first breakthrough. And he said, are you less frightened? And I said, yes, I am. And, and, and that's how kind of every session went. Like we worked through things that scared me and things that I thought I was over that I wasn't over my father's passing my 10 years ago, my dog passing things that I thought I had compartmentalized and had gotten over, but he showed me I hadn't gotten over and he showed me ways just to keep havening and not keep crying. And we did this up until my first chemo session. And if it wasn't for him, I could not have gotten to chemo because it was very, very different kind of therapy, really, really different, but it really worked for me. And, um, oh, before chemo, you have to have a, a pump installed. Uh, it's a minor surgery, and I never knew anything about this. It's a minor surgery with a attach, uh, a port, not a pump, a port. A port, where They yeah. attach a port into your, um, to your veins, and that's where all the chemicals go. So I, I had never even heard of a port before. So I had to do that. And that, he got me so that I wasn't terrified. He really took he really took the fear away. At the same time, um, my uh, doctor prescribed uh, not my oncologist, but my regular doctor prescribed um, antidepressants for me because I really 
I'd never been on antidepressants at all, but I felt like I just couldn't keep, you know, I needed something to make me stronger. So he prescribed Celexa and they worked very well for me. I didn't have any side effects from them and they kind of made me a little numb and made it so that I could move forward. They kind of really numbed me. And uh, so I was able to go to my first chemo session and the first one, they have to, after the first one, they wait half an hour in between drugs, but for the first one, they wait an hour to make sure you don't have side effects, heart palpitations. People have had, you know, like their heart stopped from their first chemo. So it's, it's pretty scary. The first chemo session that I went to by myself, my husband had to drive me 30 minutes across the river. Um, it was eight hours. I was hooked up for eight hours in a chair, just having these poisons run through me. And I didn't have any side effects that day, but in the next two weeks, I had never ending nausea and vomiting, never ending. I was in the ER once or twice in those two or three weeks. That's how bad it was. It was just, all I did was moan and groan and vomit. It was just, it was just horrible. It, there are no words to describe it. My husband went to a local furniture store. So this is still, this is now end of, this is now beginning of April. I think April 7th was my first chemo. He went, he called a furniture store because everything was closed. This is COVID. Everything was closed. And he said, my wife can't lay down in bed because she's always vomiting. Can we come in there and buy a recliner? He's like, I'm not open. Come in the back way. We had to come in the back way. Um, we had to quickly make an appointment, go in there, choose a, choose a recliner, load it up in, in the car in two pieces, bring it home. I felt like we were doing something illegal, you know, in the dark of night. And all we did was buy a chair. It was just, it was crazy to think that, you know, that that's what we're doing. And cause he didn't want to lose his business cause he wasn't essential. You know, it was, it was ridiculous. Oh, he but wasn't that, allowed to be open at all. Right. Right. But that oh, recliner okay. saved me because I, ha and it's now a year later and I'm still, I fall asleep in it. And then I come to bed later at night, but it saved me because I had to sleep sitting up and I still do because of all that vomiting, the doctor and the next session and diarrhea, um, he changed, he took out one of the components of the chemo. So I was afraid it wouldn't be as effective, but I could not go through what I went through again. They really, I was, when I went to the ER, I was really so sick. They were really very concerned about me. And I have since been in the ER four times from reactions to chemo and the drugs they've given me four times. I had no white blood cells one time. Another time they thought I was going to go into, um, I had too much lactic acid that was poisoning me. And this was all from the chemo and the chemo was six sessions every three weeks. So it was from April till end of July. And, and I had some side effects, some weird stuff that I'm still, still dealing with from it. I developed um, a kind of neuropathy, uh, brachial radial pruritus. They think it's coming from my neck and it goes up and down my arms and I get terrible pains 
and horrible, horrible itching. And I, they put me on gabapentin and it controls it. But I have welts now all up and down my arms. And now it's spreading to my neck and it's very painful and very itchy. And then from all the vomiting, I developed gastrointestinal GERD and also esophagitis. And I'm still, I've now had three endoscopies and they said it was the worst case of esophagitis that they've ever seen. And for, um, I'm, you know, for a month now, I've been on only soft foods and I haven't been allowed for a year to eat salads or raw vegetables, which is why I've gained weight because that's what I eat. And it's the side effects don't stop. It's just been a nightmare. So after chemo, I got to rest for two months and then I had my first surgery. Oh, and that was another thing. So I went, the doctor in New York city that I was no longer seeing said surgery, no reconstruction. The doctor up here said surgery mastectomy, take out my whole breast. So I'm like, I don't know what to do. So then I found a third doctor who was also highly regarded. There's a wing in a hospital up here named after his sister who died of breast cancer. So he really knew his stuff. And I went to a visit to him in the Bronx at Montefiore and he wasn't really taking new patients, but because again, my doctor friend is friends. Like the doctors are all friends with each other. It's not a big group up here. He saw me and he said, not a mastectomy, but definitely reconstruction. So at this point I had three completely different opinions and I was again, racked by the whole thing. Reconstruction, mastectomy, no reconstruction, which surgeon to use. It was, and nobody could tell you anything. And then I started talking to a girlfriend who had the same type of breast cancer that I did. And she dealt with this a year before. And she went for double mastectomy because she figured if she was going to get it in one, she would get in the other. And then she put me in touch with her support group that got her through. And it was five women who all chose to have double mastectomies because they had cancer on one breast. So that I went into another tailspin because I didn't, I, it, I, I don't know how to describe support groups can be helpful, but they could also be harmful because you hear what can be and what can be, can be terrible. And what happened to other people won't necessarily happen to you, but it, it can bring out your worst fear. So I had a very hard time being in support groups and kind of stayed away from that. So I really liked the doctor up here. She was under my insurance plan. She said to me, it's going to be too much breast tissue to take out without reconstruction. And I got to tell you, nobody tells you anything. The, the medical profession is so messed up. The oncologist doesn't talk to the PA. The PA doesn't talk to the breast surgeon. You know, and then with the breast surgeon up here, then she brought in a plastic surgeon. I'm like, what, you know, what is going on? And she said, we're going to take out too much tissue. You're going to have to have, if you're not going to do a mastectomy, you're going to have to have reconstruction. And I, I, it just blew me away because the chemo was effective. When I had another mammogram and an ultrasound, they found that the chemo had killed all the cancer, which was phenomenal. That's great. So. Right. But I didn't understand why they would then take out since it was all dead. 
why did it have to be all taken out? Like nobody explains this to you. Like, why did I go through, like my, the surgeon in New York city was going to do surgery immediately. And then I ended up going through chemo and then they take out the same parts that would have been taken out a year ago. So I still don't understand it that they took out all that stuff. It, it still does not make sense to me. And then some people have surgery, then chemo, or some have chemo, then surgery. I, I swear, I, it's, it's so barbaric, and I still don't think they know what they're doing, even though it worked. So I had the first surgery, and um, I had, and I recovered. I was, They say that you, if you're going to have reconstruction, you have to have it within a certain amount of time after the first surgery. So after the first surgery, I was recovering, and I'm like, oh. I'm okay. I don't need any reconstruction. I'll be fine. And then I met with the plastic surgeon again, and I went in there with the intention of canceling the upcoming surgery. And um, she had me put my finger down my breast because the tissue removed was on the top. And she said that they had to take out seven ounces of tissue. That's like almost a cup. If you think about it, if you make a fist or something, it's like almost a cup. And she said the space that's empty on top would then fall to the bottom. I said, well, why, you know, during the surgery, couldn't they have just rearranged it? And she said they have to make sure that they got all the cancer and all the margins and, and that they're the type of surgeons that wanted to wait to make sure the margins were clear and free of cancer before they did any surgery, whereas other people have rearranged tissue while they're under the first surgery. That's what I said. It's like every doctor gives you a different procedure, operation, different path. So I'm like, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. And then I said, all right. And then she said to me that I had to decide soon because you have to have radiation after you recover from surgery, like eight weeks later, and you're still not recovered. Trust me on that. That's a whole nother thing because once you have radiation on your breast to kill any cells that might still be there, it hardens the tissue and they don't do reconstruction after that because they can't guarantee the same results. And she assured me that if I went into radiation without reconstructing my breast, that I would have a big indentation. And that bothered me. I could like live with a, a little bit different breast size or sagging, but the idea of like seeing an indentation for the rest of my life bothered me very much. So we decided to go ahead with the plastic surgery and I knew she did not accept my insurance, but she said, don't worry, we'll work with you. And, you know, the bills just, when you're sick, you don't think about the bills. So the bills literally were sitting on my kitchen table, just piling up and piling up. Yes, my insurance paid for a lot of things, but you know, he has a bill for 300, he has a bill for 200, he has a bill for, just kept piling up. And I could not believe when I would occasionally, it wasn't until I finished this whole process that I started going through my insurance and stuff. I could not believe that each session of chemo, they, the hospital got paid between 55 and $85,000 per session. Wow. It was $380,000 that was paid for my chemo for six sessions of chemo. It's, it's, it was mind boggling, mind boggling what they pay. Right. I mean, whoever heard of these numbers, that's a house. 
Yes, it's a nice house. <laughs> it's a very nice house. So when I went through the second surgery, we had talked about options. And I was going to get the, a type of surgery where she was going to take fat from underneath my, the side of my armpit and move it up to the top of my breast. There are all different kinds of ways they do that. That's what they were going to do. They were going to just kind of take it and move the fat into the top and, and fill it in. And I said, okay. And I also said, if you need to reduce my left breast to create symmetry, that's okay. I was a big size C and I figured, all right, I had plenty to spare. And um, the law also says that if you have reconstruction on one breast, the insurance company has to pay for the other breast to create the symmetry. And another thing is that when they're doing the surgery, they have to account for how radiation is going to affect your breast. So they have to make it either a little larger, or a little smaller, whatever they decide and how radiation is going to change it. So, and then she said to me, another surgeon would be assisting, would be working with her. So I, I, I didn't think twice about it. You know, I looked on their website and I saw, oh my God, this guy's also an amazing Harvard educated surgeon. And they've done this procedure a zillion times and everybody loves them. And so meanwhile, I forgot to mention leading up to the surgery, I found um, a life coach. I no longer did the havening because I didn't have that kind of fear, but I did have a deep depression that I was so tired of being poked and prodded and going through all these medical procedures and feeling ill that I just was losing it. And um, I found a life coach and she was fantastic because I no longer needed a therapist because I was going through it. And a life coach helps you figure things out to move forward. And I really needed to move forward because there was just so much going on. And she had had breast cancer herself and she had double mastectomy. And then a year or so later, her implants were recalled. So then she had to have double removal. And then wow. she decided after all of that, that she was not going to have any kind of reconstruction. And I thought that was like the bravest thing I ever heard of. She chose to be flat chested and to have beautiful tattoos put around her scars and to become a life coach specializing in cancers. And she was amazing for me. And it, and it being a small world, she had the same plastic surgeon that I had. And that gave me confidence in this plastic surgeon. And um, it just really helped. We would have Zoom sessions once a week and she would give me homework to do about what my biggest fears were and what, what could go wrong the most and what my expectations were. And she helped me formulate questions and write them down so that when I went to the doctors, they would, I could go through them. Cause like I said, every time I went to the doctor, I'd be hysterical because some, they would tell me something else that I didn't know. They don't like give you all the information at once. They give it to you in pieces because it's so much and you'll break down. So every time I heard something new, I'd be like, oh my God, oh my God. And I couldn't take it. So between the life coach, the past havening, the antidepressants and my husband and the support system we created, I was able to do it. And I just want to backtrack a little bit before I talk about the traumatic second surgery. And um, 
mentioned the support system that I had. You know, when, when you get sick, people call you or don't call you because they're afraid you can't talk because I couldn't talk a lot. And they don't know what to do. So we didn't want to keep repeating the story over and over. So we started and, you know, Facebook, I'm rarely on it. And it's not where you give out personal, personal stuff. So we just said to our friends, we're going to start an email chain, you know, just, and I'll, Alan will regularly send out emails just to tell people how I'm doing and whatever, because I just many times did not have the breath to talk. And um, during this time, I had also become anemic. So I just had no energy. I would literally lay there. And um, so we started an email and people would say, what can we do for you? And I said, you know, I, lo I lost all my hair. Send me chemo caps, send me caps that I could wear. You know, it's spring, then it's summer, then it's fall. So I'll need different ones and whatever. I ended up getting over 60 caps. And it wow. was the nicest thing because they were all different. There were Grateful Dead ones and they were flapper ones and there were summer ones and they were caps. And, you know, I would wear, not that I ever left the house or did anything, but if I had the energy to actually get dressed, I'd wear a cap to match my clothes. And whenever I went to the doctors, they would say, oh, I love that cap. And it's so, it's so bright and it would change my mood. And it was really, really nice. And also during that time, when I reached certain milestones, people would send flowers and someone sent me a, my girlfriend sent me a pink jumpsuit with the color pink and, and another sent like a snack box and stuff like that. There was just, it was just really, really sweet really, really sweet. And so um, I had a wonderful, wonderful support system. And that that made all the difference because I didn't want to go on the breast cancer support groups, but people rallying around. And I was very honest. I would write an email and Alan would send it out. And I was very honest. Your mother was the recipient of these emails. And I was very honest about what I would go through. And, and you know, like people would respond, like your mom would tell me when, because I remember when she was in the hospital and I remember when we weren't allowed to visit her and she was in isolation and it made me think about COVID because nobody could visit and she got through it and how she got through it. And that, that helped a lot. So sharing with people and being deep down honest with your, with your good friends really really helps you get through anything. And it made me so sad to think of somebody who was alone, who wasn't living with somebody to have to go through this because COVID made it isolating enough, but at least there's, you know, Zoom and FaceTime and email. I just can't imagine people going through this alone. It just broke my heart. And um, <clears throat> I do want to mention that I've been with my husband, you know, as living together and married, but we've been together for 20 years this was the first summer ever that we spent together because before I met him, I had my house in Northern Maine and I went there every summer. And when I met him, I wasn't going to change that because I had my garden and my friends who have houses on lakes and I swim and I canoe and I walk and I, I just love it up there. And I have my girlfriends and I wasn't giving it up. So all my life, even when we moved up here, for 20 years, I've been going to Maine now for 35 years. I wasn't giving it up. This was the first summer ever that Alan and I spent together. And that was also a learning curve. <laughs> and we ended up having a garden built for me here, even though the doctor said I couldn't eat any raw vegetables. I would give stuff away. I cook some stuff, you know, just, just something to look forward to. I planted a ton of flowers so that I would have all the birds, you know, just, it was a very different experience, let's say. And I'm looking forward to going to Maine again this summer. And I'm already talking to people about working on my garden because it's been fallow for two years. But um, 
yeah, <laughs> that was crazy. But having a good support system and, and someone to take care of you is just, just amazing. So after the second surgery, I had to have a nurse come every day because I had both breasts operated on and it was horrific. It was so painful. And every day in the beginning, you have drains to take the fluid out. She had to empty the drains. She had to um, deal with, clean all the stitches. And there are stitches everywhere. It's like Frank and boob. There are stitches absolutely everywhere. So when I was in that, you stay overnight after the first surgery was outpatient. The second surgery, I stayed overnight. And the next morning, the other doctor who I hadn't met, the other plastic surgeon who worked on me, it, it was a five hour operation with both of them operating. He came to talk to me and this guy, I had never met him before, the surgeon was gorgeous. I mean, drop dead gorgeous. So here I am in the hospital, I'm on oxycodone, I'm all wrapped up, he's talking to me and I'm literally going, I don't know what he said, I don't know what was going on. I didn't understand a thing. And so that by the time I got home that day, I didn't know how to do the drains, you know, but I had had a nurse all arranged and everything. So the next day she came and she explained everything to me and I'm diabetic. So I have to have my, oh, that's another thing. I was borderline diabetic and low diabetic before chemo. Chemo exploded my diabetes. Now I have to have medication every day and it's, it's a whole nother situation. So the nurse was great. She was beyond wonderful. She would come and take my blood pressure and change my bandages. And after a couple of days, she would shower me because I wasn't allowed to get things wet. It was just, I had her every day for two weeks. I could not have done anything if I didn't have her. And, um, you know, it's so weird that they send you home from these operations and you're not prepared to deal with the medical part of what you have to do. And, you know, I could not move or touch these places and I wasn't going to ask my husband to unwrap me and, and change bloody bandages. And I don't know, maybe the third or fourth day that the nurse Jackie was there, she was so sweet. She'd bring me eggs from her chickens and soup that she made like unbelievably, what a just gentle soul. So you may want to edit out this part, but it was very funny. So I'm in the kitchen on a chair and she's unwrapping the bandages and emptying the fluid and measuring how much. And so I'm naked from the waist up and it's just, it's just disgusting. And my husband walks in and he says, this is the beginning of the worst porn movie I would have ever seen. <laughs> so we're all, <laughs> right? He's like, is there a new genre horror porn? So we're cracking up. We're just cracking up. So the three of us had just a very free, sweet, nice relationship. And I would look forward to her coming and it helped me start feeling better. But so this is now 14 days. I think I was going to have her for another few days. And then I developed uncontrollable diarrhea and a fever of 103 and you're supposed to go to the ER if you have a fever over 100, if you have cancer. So um, I wanted to go to the ER closest to here. Oh, I called the plastic surgeon and she said she didn't have admitting privileges up there that I should go to the hospital 
where, she, where I had the surgery. So I went there and uh, they took me in and I spent 21 hours in the ER. It was horrible. It ended up that they found out that I had an infection called C. diff, which is something that happens when you have too many antibiotics and everything in you is dead. And so after, after all the surgeries, you're on antibiotics. And I had so many antibiotics, my, my stitches weren't closing well enough. So she kept changing antibiotics for me to take. And by that time I had been on antibiotics for like a month and my body just shut down. So the diarrhea is uncontrollable. The fever's out of it. And I literally spent 21 hours in the ER because I had to be admitted to a room that was isolated because I was infectious. And my husband kept calling because I was literally shitting everywhere, just pooping everywhere. And because I was tied to a heart monitor on the wall, I, I kid you not, I couldn't reach a sink. I couldn't reach paper towels. I couldn't um, wash my hands. So I would purposely pull out the heart monitor to get the beeping going, to get somebody to help me, to wipe me, to clean me. And this went on for 21 hours until they found a bed for me. It was the worst experience. It was worse than surgery and I was traumatized. Just imagine laying there in your own feces while you're in an ER and nobody's taking care of you because they were so busy. It was just, it was horrible, horrible, horrible. I, I'm, really, I'm really still traumatized by it. So that was Saturday. So Sunday morning, I'm still laying there and the plastic surgeon who lives in uh, Connecticut drove up on a Sunday to check up on me. That's how compassionate she was to see how I was doing. And she helped make sure that I was put in a room that morning and cleaned up and taken care of. So I, I get into a hospital room and I ended up being hospitalized for a week with this C. diff while I'm still all bandaged, while I'm still in pain, while I'm still healing. So that was another horrible experience that I had to go through. And that's, um, I think that's when they found out I was anemic and um, had to start, you know, that, that started getting better after the C. diff because then I started taking iron. But that's when they said that I really had to have um, a colonoscopy because I told them that um, my father had colon cancer, but I had not been able to get a colonoscopy because of the breast cancer. And they wouldn't release me for, until I agreed that I'd go find somebody, see somebody. I said, I promise, just let me get through this. So that was like Halloween, because I remember there was no Halloween. So then, then I couldn't start radiation on time because I was still recovering from the C. diff. So, oh, let me just shut that. So it just became like nightmare after nightmare of when am I, you know, when this, when that. And then I started going to the radiation doctor and he said, you're not recovered enough and we can't give you antibiotics. So then I had to do solutions of uh, betadine and saline like 24 seven to help the stitches heal. It just, this nightmare just kept going on. So by this time I'd been hospitalized for a week. I had four ER visits. I had GERD, I had this rash, you know, and then finally I get to start radiation and I didn't understand radiation either. 
And then you go to radiation and they tell you all these other side effects that can happen. You're, you're, you, it's more, you get sunburned, then your breasts can blister and you get unbelievable fatigue and I might not be able to drive myself there. It's like, again, 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 I'm like, all right, what if I don't get radiation? Then you have a 40% chance of breast cancer coming back in that breast. And with radiation, you have, a, you have the same chance as if you had a mastectomy and had it taken out. So I'm like, all right, we'll start the radiation. And it ended up, it's different treatment amounts for different people. I ended up needing 33 radiation treatments in a row with weekends off. So the first two weeks was nothing. And then your breast starts to get really red and really sore. And every day I would, um, that's another thing. I told a friend I needed aloe plants for radiation. So I have all these aloe plants now. And every day I'd have to come home and cut open an aloe plant and put it all over me, then put aquifer, then put meoderm. It just never ended with all the things that I needed to put on my breast to make it not blister. And the doctor was right. I'd come home from radiation and I would nap every day. It just makes you unbelievably tired. And then a few weeks into it, then my back starts getting red because the radiation is going straight through you. So the people there were fantastic. And once a week, they check up on, on your skin and do blood work and make sure you're all doing it okay. So meanwhile, while I'm going to the radiation, I was going to a lymphedemia physical therapist specialist. And thank goodness I found her because there's only one within a hundred mile radius. And thank goodness she, she takes my insurance because that's also $285 an appointment. I mean, the number, the numbers are outrageous. And because I had lymph node removed, she works with my and because radiation can make it worse if you've had a lymph node removed, she does stretching with me to make sure that I can use my arm. And when my, now I'm only 10 days done with radiation. So soon she'll start helping me to learn how to massage my scars because like I said, it's Franken boob, but it's still too tender to touch. And my operation was October. So it's still too tender to touch. So that's, that's how long it takes. Nobody talks about, you know, six months in, five months in, and I'm still hurting. And I'm, my scars are giant and I'm still putting lotions on. And uh, so I just had my last endoscopy from all the vomiting. And uh, she said, the bleeding has stopped. I'm less anemic. And maybe I can start to eat some salads. So that's where I am today, starting to get my energy back. I still have treatments happening. I still have my port in. Every three weeks, I get two drugs infused, Herceptin and Progetta, and they're estrogen blockers. And I have, I have three more treatments of them. That went on for a whole year. So by the end, I will have had 17 treatments of these drugs. And these drugs only take two and a half hours to infuse. And my insurance company has only charged 35000 for each of these treatments. And um, then after that, I'm going to be on uh, some sort of estrogen blocker for the next five to 10 years, which have their own side effects, which is mostly osteoporosis. So I have to start a, a regimen of um, calcium, magnesium, vitamin C, a whole another thing, which I haven't started yet because I bought calcium pills and I can't swallow. So. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. What, dry I mouth? have to get some liquid. So I just got a Vitamix because I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. This, Because all I could keep down was carbs. 
I've been, I've gained 15 pounds because all I've been able to eat are things that I never eat. White potatoes, pasta, things like that. They go down. Anything healthy comes right back up. My, my digestion can't handle it. So I'm starting a new very soon, new medication, maybe eat again, normal, start to move a little more. My only movement has been, I've been starting to take in wood and I did a little shoveling because it's never ending snow. So I'm starting and I'm starting to feel better and the iron pills have worked and the anemia has lessened. And so that's exactly where I am today. And I'm also in the midst of um, stopping my antidepressants because I'm no longer um, breast cancer depressed. I'm just COVID depressed like everybody else. Well, so, it still counts, but I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're on the mend. I am on the mend. I am absolutely on the mend. And uh, I just, I look forward to when I could get the vaccine. The governor just made it because I'm overweight and diabetic and under cancer treatment. I was, I still wasn't eligible for the vaccine in New York because there are so many people, but starting February 15th, starting next week, I'm eligible for the vaccine. So then it'll start with the calling every day and the scrambling because there are no vaccines, there are no appointments, but at least now I'm eligible and I can start that way. So that's where we are today. Oh, I, uh, I, I can't I, believe how long I talked and please no, feel free to edit and, and splice in whatever you need to fix around, but it's been uh, a long, rough journey. I, well, first of all, I, I don't edit anything. Um, this uh, just, um, you, you mentioned my mom, so I can, say it's you know it's it's um thank you for sharing um but i do have a few questions if you don't mind i don't mind i really can't believe how long i talked uh well it was it's it's informative and i think it's really helpful for people who might be going through what you're going through yeah Um, and you know what i really want to do something for people who are going through because i never ever thought i would see hope I never, and that's what I worked on with the doctor with Havening. And that's what I worked on with my life coach about hope. Cause I did not feel hope. And now I do. Now I feel like I can get on with it. And, oh, remember I said that the doctors never tell you anything. It wasn't yeah. until the last radiation se- se- session that the radiation oncologist said to me, you can never expose that any part that was radiated. You could never expose it to sunlight. And I looked at him. And I said, you mean now that I have these perky breasts, nobody can see them? I, I just was like devastated. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I never told you another part. And you may have to go back in this. After the doctor in the hospital told me all this stuff and I went home, what happened during the second surgery is they decided they didn't need to take the cut to cut the fat from my breast, that I had enough fat that they could rearrange it. So unbeknownst to me, during the surgery, they reduced me from a large B, from a large C to a very, very small B. And I have been spending the past couple of months trying to psychologically get used to being a much, much smaller size. And it's been very difficult for me. It really has. I've had to get, you know, all new bras, not that I could wear any bras because they're still too tender, but it's been very devastating to me because I loved my big, beautiful breasts. So now I have teeny ones and it's, 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 it, even though I'm older, it's still something they were a source of pride for me. And it's been very difficult for me that part. 
And I'm just starting to get past it. Just, just, I may never, I don't know, you know, so that's it. But nobody's, nobody's really seen me, you know, except a couple of girlfriends on Zoom have been like, please, 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 let's see what you look like. And I would show them and they're like, you look great. What are you talking about? I you know, want to look like that. And so that's a whole nother issue of body image, but yeah. All right. So ask away. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's start with the body image. So for women who are going through something like this, particularly with the, the body image concerns, what do you wish you were told or that you knew, or what kind of support would you wish that you had ahead of time to help you ease into this? Um, I wish I, I got connected through a support group. I got connected to one woman who lives up here who was like half a year ahead of me with the same kind of treatment. And she opted to go the same route that I did, except she opted to have no reconstruction. And she has two different size breasts now, and she's very happy with that. So I wish that I had been exposed to more. I don't want to say more choices because the more choices get you crazy, but there are so many different types of breast cancer and so many different solutions to it that I wish I wasn't grouped in with everybody who had different types and different solutions. Like I would have wanted uh, to talk to more women who had the same kind of chemo I had and the same situation I was in. And I really only found one person. Okay. Um, okay. Um, so just going back to yeah. my own experience with my mother, um, you had mentioned her kind of being alone. She had different cancer, different type of treatment. Right. Um, we were allowed in fully gowns. There were a lot of concerns about infecting her. Um, but you went through this during COVID. You mentioned yes. Alan sitting in the car a lot. Were the nurses able to spend time with you? Did Alan at any point get to go see you? What, what, he was what were you only allowed, allowed to do? The, the only time in the whole year when he was allowed to be with me was when I was hospitalized with the C. diff in isolation. And that's when he was allowed to see me fully gloved and fully gowned, the whole thing. Oh, and when I was in isolation in COVID, I was again, I, the depression came back because I felt like I had gone through all this and here I am back at square one in the hospital. They had a priest and a rabbi and a psychologist come visit me because that's how depressed I was. And they all concluded that I was just situationally depressed and that I did not need any more medication. And then I got back in touch with the life coach and she helped me through that too. But that was the only time every other thing was all by myself. And all I got to say, God bless the nurses. They are everywhere I went. The nurses were the most compassionate people. I, it just day after day, God knows what they were going through, especially the oncology, you know, the oncology nurses, what they see and what they do. And, and just everybody was so, so wonderful. I just cannot praise them enough. Really, really, really. Yeah, the nurses, you're reminding me of when my when my dad was going through his treatments and my mom put chocolate in his room to try to entice the nurses to go spend time with him. <laughs> That's so fun. No, they were um, just absolutely wonderful. I, I didn't I didn't lack for anything. So you you also obviously discuss your support system a lot, which is just vital. But you also were discussing how um you just were withdrawn. You obviously didn't want to reach out yeah. to anybody. How did you 
how did you build your, how did you tell your friends and how did you build the support system for yourself? Well, it, I have different groups of friends. I have my friends in Maine from 30 years of summers. I have a couple of friends still left in Brooklyn from when we were all together. I have a group of friends that are on Long Island and I have a group of friends up here. So I'm very, very fortunate. And um, I told my closest friends and then we started emailing some other people because like I said, I couldn't repeat the story over and over. And uh, one of my closest friends is a, a professor of chiropractic. So he's, he knows everything medical. So he would be who I would speak to all the time about my medical procedures and what was going on. And he had me on a lot of um, homeopathic things that I don't know if they helped or not for diarrhea, for nausea. I'm on one now for my esophagitis. I'm on lycopodium and Ipecac and whatever. I don't even know if they work, but he has a degree in that. So I figured they work too. And um, then I have a, another friend who's also knows a lot of medical stuff. And then I've been con in constant touch with the first doctor who we became friends with and people were just really, really kind. And then over the summer, since we were able to be six feet apart from people outside, we have um, a deck and a small above ground pool. So we were able to invite people over and barbecue and just sit outside. And I'd invite people to go in my garden and pick whatever they wanted or take whatever. So the summer became more bearable and more pleasant as I started feeling my chemo ended July 27th. So I had the whole month of August and stuff like that. So it started feeling a lot better and able to at least see people from a distance. And it was really nice. And then we started inviting people over, you know, like like a couple here or some people there over for um, a fire at night. And so that helped with the um, support system. And then, um, one or two places opened up in Woodstock with like outdoor beer gardens so that there would be live music. So I would go out and see people, you know, from a distance, you know, and I'd go, Hey, it's me underneath the cap and the mask and, and the glasses. And they, you know, so just seeing a couple of people outdoors really helped rejuvenate me. And, and then um, over the past couple of months, I had uh, one, two, three different girlfriends come up um, just to physically, see that it was, I was okay. One girlfriend rented a cabin with her family like a, nearby so that the, she could see me occasionally. It was like an hour away so that I could see her occasionally. So people really wanted to physically see that I was okay. And that really made a difference that friends, friends, you know, would take a hotel room, you know, just to see me during the day and stay overnight because I wouldn't let anybody in the house kind of things. So that really made a difference just having people there physically made a difference too. And a few weeks ago, we went to visit friends. They rented a, an Airbnb for the weekend. It was a friend's birthday. And I was very hesitant, but um, I went and we all did yoga with masks and we had a fire and it, it so raised my spirit. So little by little, I'm getting out of my depression and, and wanting to see people and reconnecting. I mean, when you call people and you say they're okay and you hear them crying on the other end, because they were so worried, you know, it, it really affects you. And, and it's brought me a lot closer to people. And, you know, you think about all your values and what matters and, uh, you know, reflecting it all, the biggest change in me personally is that I see now that, that money does not matter. 
that what matters is, is the people who are in your life. And that really was like such a profound change for me to see such real love and real warmth coming from people. Just, I, I could, I could cry from all the love that I felt. And I really, really felt it. I would have people chanting for me whenever I went for surgeries and procedures and, and sending um, Reiki and, and sending everything. And it just, I feel like it really made a difference that that support made the whole difference between every, every procedure being successful. And I am a case for everything was successful. Chemo was successful. The first surgery was successful. The second surgery was successful. I got through the radiation without the horrible, horrible side effects, except I'm still sleeping a lot from it, but everything was successful. And I credit it to the support that I had around me and reaching out for the support that I needed, that I didn't know that I needed, that my husband was very instrumental and friends were instrumental in helping me get that support. That's great. Yeah. Go on. No, I was going to say, it's like, I'm still not, you know, I was very, very obsessed with money and saving and whatever. And my husband would say to me, well, this is what you save for so that you could afford to keep living. And um, the biggest bill that I'm going through now, this is unbelievable. I knew my doctor, my plastic surgeon didn't accept my insurance, but they said they would work with me. I got a bill for $66,000. And my insurance company paid $1,250. Isn't that disgusting? That's, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so right now that's on hold because, because I'm just getting out of my hole. So right now that's on hold, but yeah, so that's what I have to deal with. And like my, my husband keeps saying, well, you save all your life. If you have to pay them some money each month for the rest of your life, you're healthy. You have your own breasts. Everything's okay. So that's how I look at it. But yeah, I just want people to know that with insurance, it's still insane. And I could not, with still COVID going on, I could not have a surgeon up here and then go down to the city for reconstruction because you have to see the people every every week until you're finished and then more checkups. So it just, it was too much. So, And the radiation to, you mentioned was every day. That was every day. 33 that's, days. Yeah, that's covered, thankfully. That's good. But uh, this wasn't. And so I'll deal with it because you know what? She was kind. She was compassionate. They did a great job. I don't want to stiff them, but I certainly can't afford that. So I'll just afford it over time. Wow. Well, with the two yeah. bills you've shared out of yeah. all the stuff you've gone through, you could buy a small house in the Bay Area in California. It's crazy. I don't see how drug companies can charge as much as they charge. And I think that's why the whole medical system is broken. It's like when you are diagnosed with any kind of cancer, you should have one person like a, a palliative concierge taking care of you because you don't know. I mean, I need, you know, I need a nutritionist and I need a psychiatrist and I need the, med- you know, there's a, you need that and you have to go and find it on your own. And I'm, I had to find everything on my own and make all the phone calls and do all the everything. And you're not, you're not physically and mentally capable of it because you're near breakdown half the time. So it's just, this whole system is broken. It really is. It, it needs a massive, massive fall over. But anyway. yeah, ho- hopefully that's yeah. coming. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, so you, you had briefly alluded to when we were talking about support systems earlier, friends that it almost sounds like didn't know how to respond or support or who were maybe scared to reach out. 
if you could say something to those people, because it's not an uncommon reaction, what would you like to say? I've told them. I've told them that without them, I couldn't, I couldn't get by. You know, every conversation ends with, I love you. You're important in my life. I, I feel gratitude for you. Every, every conversation ends that way. You know, I look forward to the time where I could see you, hug you, hold you, have dinner with you, care for you, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and people did bring meals over occasionally also, which was very kind. I guess the question is more for, let's for the friends who maybe were hesitant to reach out or respond and then maybe six, eight months later realize they made a mistake and they want to reach out now, but they're anxious or nervous because they felt like they weren't there for you the whole time had one friend that disappeared from my life and he has um he has ms and he was going through his own things but i had always been there for him and i was very hurt that he wasn't there for me and i had a mutual friend call him because we hadn't spoken in like months and months and he called up and said i am so sorry i was going through my own stuff i was also in the hospital but now i understand how I deserted you when you did not desert me. And now I will always be there for you. And now he's been checking in every week by text and stuff like that. So yeah, I would talk to people when I would say you hurt me or you abandoned me, but now you're here, but mostly it was, everybody was really there, really there. That's good. That's good. Um, so I, I tend to not ask about other people in your life. Cause this is more about your story, but I do think it's important to discuss how Alan dealt with everything. Cause he couldn't be there with you. No. And men being men don't usually reach out and share their feelings and all the social workers and all the mental help I got, they were all like, does he want to join a support group? Do, do you want me to talk with him? And he never wanted to talk to the social worker and he never wanted to reach out to anybody. So, you know, I, I really can't say a lot. He, rose to the occasion. I mean, I could not believe how incredible he was. I just, I, you know, I married him because he was always, he always had the best moral compass and he always did the right thing. Like he would have to remind me uh, of when our anniversary was. Like I'd, I'd forget the date, I mean, could, or, or other people's birthdays or to say, send a card or call this one. He was always just very caring and compassionate, but I never needed care. And like, you know, I just never needed care. Well, you know, all he asked for is, you know, make me dinner because he's not a cook or anything like that. And he just, he didn't stop doing for me. You know, when, when somebody has to clean up when your body no longer functions, you get very close. He, he installed a bidet in the toilet because of all my diarrhea. He put bowls in every room for when I would vomit. I mean, he just was so incredibly, he would bring me shakes because I could, you know, and put straws and cups and, and give me my medication every day because I could not, I could not remember anything. I could not do anything. I could just lay there when things were really bad. There were days he was not even allowed in the ER. One day I had tests an hour away and he had to wait in the car for three hours. And later that day I had um, a violent reaction to the chemical that they make you swallow for an MRI. And I ended up having to go to the ER and he had to wait five hours in the car. So that was a total of eight hours that he spent waiting in the car for me just one day, you know, and he was just, then when I was in the hospital, which was an hour away, he came every single day 
and um, he was just, just, just incredible. And, you know, I, I knew it affected him. I, I knew he, he, he would be crying sometimes. Uh, occasionally I heard him talking to a friend or two. So it definitely affected him, definitely affected him. And it brought us closer together, but also it affected his work because COVID affected his work. And then he had to take care of me all the time and it really affected his work. And he was going to take a, a family leave of absence because it was getting to be too much, but he decided economically to stick with it and stick with work. And now, now we, we had a couple of th agreements going forward to make every day bearable. We would, our agreement was that from dinner time on, we did not talk about cancer. We would not answer the phone because people would be asking how I was, you know, he could do it. He could answer the phone, but I was not going to talk about cancer and, and he and I would not talk about it. So every day, um, if I was feeling well enough, I would make him dinner. We'd have a, a, some sort of dinner. We would get high after dinner. My doctors um, strongly encouraged me to keep getting high because he said, if it, they all said, if it helps relieve your anxiety, go for it. So I would, and there were days I really did need it to increase my appetite, which unfortunately now I have a great appetite, but, um, and we would try to watch some, something funny, like no dramas, just something funny on TV or at night in the summer or when it was nice, we'd go outside and, and look at the fire and, you know, just or look at the stars and have a fire, just something. So he really was there and he, he never complained, but as soon as I was able to do it, like I said, we started just making dinners and having a routine. Oh, and his sister rented a cabin up in Woodstock for a week so that she could take care of me too. Like the, the compassion was unbelievable. I had a friend renting a cabin, his sister renting a cabin. And um, the hardest part for him is um, he had, I have a step-grandson and he has a grandson who was a year old in October. And that's been the hardest part for him because he has not visited them once or twice he has, but because of COVID and because of me, he has not visited them. So that they zoom every day, but it makes him so sad that he can't see this kid. But if I get a vaccine and start getting better now that he could start, but that's really how it affected him because he had to restrict his life so completely because he could not take any chances because of me because I still don't have an immune system. So that's really how it affected my caregiver. And he was, you know, in different times, you could have different caregivers, but in this time he was my sole caregiver and my sole contact, you know, so it was hard. I would send him, there were some things that were awfully funny. Um, I would send him with a list to the supermarket. He'd never been to the supermarket up here really. So every time he went to the supermarket, I would get at least six phone calls and at least a dozen photos. Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? It would be, it would be hysterical, you know, because he just didn't know where things were or what I wanted. You know, it was just funny, funny. He got it. And then I had another girlfriend go to the health food store for me because he just, it just, he couldn't, you know, it just was too much. <laughs> and now we order online and pick up. So it's a lot easier, but it cracked me up because I would send a list and everything would come back different. <laughs> just yeah, we, uh, we used to say cancer is just a big pain in the butt. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it 
would um, just be funny. And that's another thing. The little thing, like if it was a different time and I sent him to the grocery store and I was upset, you know, I would say something. But now the little things truly do not bother me because I've been through cancer. Fuck the little things. Fuck the bills. I don't care. You know, it's given me a different attitude and hopefully more compassion. And I want to do something to help people that are going through what I'm going through, but I don't know how that's going to look yet, but it's going to be something because I always was a volunteer and I always helped people. So I want to continue to do that. And like I said, it breaks my heart to think that somebody could not have the wonderful support system that I had. Yeah. Um, so speaking of COVID, cause that's, you know, part of why I wanted to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously high risk, you had no white blood cells at least yeah. for a period of time. You mentioned having, it sounds like you saw your friends outside, but you had uh, nurses coming into the house. You were in and out just of hospitals. And, just oh, just the, the one. Okay. Yes. yes. Um, but in and out of the ER, going to hospitals, yep. seeing different specialists, what kind of COVID protocols did you experience, um, I guess, both at those places? And what did you and Alan practice at home? Well, at, at the doctors and at the hospitals and at all the way to, you know, you'd sit there, everybody just wore masks. And I'd have to sit there at infusion for six to eight hours um, with a mask on the whole time. There was never a time where I didn't have a mask and the nurses and the doctors didn't have a mask. And it's interesting because my oncologist, um, we went online for a while, you know, the telemed visits and it wasn't till I call, we had to call the emergency room to get admitted to the ER. And they said, who's your doctor? And they weren't supposed to say this, but the person at the other end said, Oh, your doctor is unavailable. He's um, recuperating from COVID. So we'll assign you this doctor. So I didn't even know that my oncologist had COVID. So when I found that out, that was really, really scary. And he never said anything and he never shared it. But after that, when I would visit him, it no longer involved opening my mouth and looking in, (laughs) you know, and it, it just was very, his, he, you know, and I'm thinking, well, oh my God, he's in the hospital where I go, you know, and I was scared, but the nurses, never had it. No, one nurse was out for a few weeks and we never found, like they never talked about it and nobody would say a word. So we didn't know, but she was out for a few weeks too. And they had to take the infusion center and they had to double it because the patients from another hospital, they ran out of room because they had so many COVID patients that they had to transfer their, their um, daytime cancer patients to the hospital that I was going to. So it became so many more people and so scarier, but I just always wore a mask and now I wear two masks. We would not let anybody in the house. I'm telling you, if people needed to use the bathroom, the the guys could pee on the trees and the woman would go to the bathroom that was downstairs, isolated from the rest of the house. And then Alan would clean everything with bleach. And we always had masks from the beginning and gloves and the whole deal. We always did. So wow. we could, even when people left things for me, I'd say, leave it by the mailbox and I'll come out and get it, even food. You know, and everybody would say, don't worry about the containers, don't worry about this, don't worry about that. How did they in the hospital separate the COVID overflow from the cancer patients? Or maybe you don't know. They, I don't know. I don't know. They would. They, it was like nothing talked about. 
they would just say, don't worry, we're taking precautions. You know, but you're in a room with, you know, 10 other patients and everybody's wearing masks and they assured me that the ventilation was good and whatever and everybody was fine. And oddly enough, the only time I ever got, I've had like five COVID tests and it was only before procedures. It was never at infusion in any way. It was only before medical procedures. But Alan gets tested all the time. He goes like every two weeks just to go get tested, just to make sure. Yeah. But that's not really a bad thing. So No, no. Even though we've had no contact. So you, uh, throughout, throughout this, you've been mentioning not being given information or not knowing or being given too much information and not given kind of the means to process it or just not knowing what you're exactly. getting into. I really... I, I think it's really important to kind of get out there. What do you, what resources do you wish you had before, or at least in the beginning or before this happened? What do you wish you knew or what would you have done differently if you had to go through this all again? Uh, I wish I had somebody to hold my hand. I really felt as much support as I had and as much love as I had. I really was going through it alone because I did not know the information. I did not know how to make choices. I did not understand what was ahead of me and how long it would be and that, that it would be a year of dealing with this. I did not understand that. I don't think they really know everything. I think some things work for some people and some medical procedures don't work for other people. But um, I just wish I had that one medical concierge to guide me through all the things that I needed, mental, physical, diet wise, like my radiation oncologist didn't know anything about nutrition. You know, my nutritionist, my I saw a nutritionist for cancer and I had to seek these people out. They didn't come to me. And then I saw another one during radiation and she was like, well, you know, keep up your proteins and eat a lot of chicken. And I'm like, but I can't, you know, I don't, you, I can't eat chicken because I'm choking on it. So the gastroenterologist was a whole different thing, you know? So there were just so many, I had a gastroenterologist. I had a, a life coach. I had a psychiatrist. I had a social worker. I had a, radiation oncologist. I had radiation therapists. I had a, a regular oncologist. I had a, um, a PA. I had a doctor. It's like there's too many things involved, you know, and then the insurance company is a whole different thing. I now have a health advocate trying to work with me with for that big bill, which I'm getting nowhere, but they're going to help me work on an appeal. I just wish, like Alan kept saying, call your health insurance and see if they have one person to guide you or your old teachers union and there's nobody to guide you there's just not one person to guide you through all you have to do and i had to that i had to do alone and that that was the hardest part of it putting all the pieces together wow so i you've been so giving with your story i really appreciate it um i don't think many people get so candid about difficult topics and <laughs> it's 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 really important and i really really just want to thank you before we end, is there anything else that you want to share? I've, I always went to yoga and I always chanted and I always did this and that, but 
it's now that I feel true gratitude in my heart. It's really, until you go through something like this, you don't realize how much you need other people, how, how lucky I am to have some health insurance, to have a pension. I did a career that was a lot more down than up teaching in inner city Brooklyn for all of it and very, very rough. But I am so grateful that I'm in a home with my husband and I can have friends and that I have something to look forward to and that there is medicine around to help me and that I could try to be healthy again. And that now whatever happens is on me and I can't blame it on anything else because I have all the tools I need to move forward, except for the motivation, which I'm working on. But really what I've learned from all this is just, you know, gratitude and community will get you through. That's, that's good advice. Well, yeah. Fidel, thank you. Thank you so much again for your time today. I can't believe how much I babbled. <laughs> I really feel like I babbled. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really, it's a helpful and it's an inspiring story. I appreciate I, it. I hope to. And if I could help anybody from the depths of depression I was in to see that it's a process. And if you do some, some of the work, you can get through. And I did the work and I got through. That's great. And I could talk about it without crying and without fear, which That's is a major a breakthrough. Success. Yeah. Yeah. I went from on the floor wanting to commit suicide to now worrying that I can't show people my boobs. <laughs> That's pretty full circle.